80-year-old woman was being interviewed by a local news station about the fact that she just gotten married for the fourth time. The interviewer asked her questions about her life and what it felt like to be married again in your 80s, and then about her new husband's <coughs> occupation. Well, he's a funeral director. She answered, um, interesting, said the interviewer. He then asked her if she wouldn't mind telling a little bit about her past life and her, her past three husbands uh, and what they did for a living. So she paused a few moments, needing time to reflect on all of those decades of life. And after a short time, a smile came to her face and she answered proudly, explaining her first husband was a banker and when, that was in her 20s. Then her second husband was a circus ringmaster. That was in her 40s. No, and later she married books. a preacher in her 60s. And now in her 80s, a funeral director. <laughs> the interviewer looked at her, quite astonished, and he asked her, why she had married men with such diverse you know, careers and variety, and she just smiled and said, well, mm -hmm. I married one for the money, <laughs> two for the show, <laughs> third to get ready, and four to go. Okay, most of us have fond memories of our own wedding day, and as you attend a wedding, it's easy to get tears in your eyes because you look at this young couple and you know a lot of joy and a lot of hard times lie ahead. And it's easy to cry at a wedding. <clears throat> well, God is the one who established marriage. He's the one who gave away the first bride, Eve, to Adam in Eden. And as we come to our study of Psalm 45, it is a very unique psalm unlike any other. We read all the sights and sounds and the emotions of a wedding day event. But it is also a messianic psalm, because we see in verses 6 and 7 specifically talking, Oh God, and we see it uh, in Hebrews chapter 1 as a re reference to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> We're not told the identity of this earthly king and his bride. It's possible that it was uh, at the time of Solomon and all of his greatness and the many princesses he married. <laughs> There was a Jewish poet who was writing this psalm for a specific Jewish king, but he also is looking ahead to the ideal and promised one in the future. Now, we're familiar with the traditions of an American wedding. There's often guest books, ushers, bridesmaids, groomsmen's, unity candles, mixing of sand, mixing of salt, you know, all of those things. Some people have special music, love songs to their beloved or about the Lord throwing away the bouquet, dinner reception, cake reception, you know, that's our traditions. <clears throat> but this is the, our frame of reference. It's not what was going on when this was written. It's not a Middle Eastern type of wedding. To better understand this psalm, which is written about an ancient time wedding, we need to look back at the traditions of their day so we really have a better understanding what's going on here. In ancient times, the first step to lead to a wedding was betrothal. And this was a formal, official act, usually arranged by parents of the bride and groom. Sometimes the children were able to make their wishes known. This was a legal commitment, so it was much more than an engagement. Oaths were taken, and the couple could be called husband and wife, even though they had not yet come together. Such was the case, as you recall, with Mary and Joseph. To break this betrothal required a divorce. <clears throat> the husband's Family was required to provide a dowry for the bride. 
And there was often a long delay between betrothal and the actual wedding because they may have been very young when the betrothal was uh, decided and agreed upon. So when the wedding day finally did comes, come, the friend and the attendants of the bride would all be gathered at her house and she prepared herself just like a bride would do today, getting on the most beautiful dresses, hair done, jewelry, and so on as she prepared. And then the groom and all his friends and attendants were gathered at his house. And then there would be this grand procession through the streets as the groom and all of his entourage went to the home of the bride. Then the second procession was the entire bridal party returning back to the grooms. This was a very joyful time. The wedding feast then would start sometimes. It could last up to two weeks, depending on the finances of the groom's family. I mean, we think one dinner is a killer. I, you know. Anyways, that's how it went. <clears throat> so having this as a background, I think it's easier to better understand how we see the king coming for his bride in verses 2 through 9. Then in verses 10 through 12, we see the bride eagerly awaiting her groom and she's being given advice as she's waiting. And then the bride is led out and the whole entourage makes its procession back to the royal palace. This was a real wedding that took place with an earthly king and his bride. But it goes beyond that because we read about a future wedding of David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And one day he will celebrate his union with his redeemed, as you saw in your questions in Revelation 19. The bride, his church, will be clothed in garments made of her righteous acts. He will return for his bride. He will set up David's throne as he rules the earth for a thousand-year literal reign. The New Testament book of Hebrews uh, quotes this psalm, so we know it's a messianic fulfillment presented about Jesus. So we first of all begin with verses, verse 1, and we look at this chapter 45 of Psalm, Praise for the King and splendor on his wedding day. We see the joy of the man recording this. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. So the psalmist here is overcome with emotion as he is about to write about this noble theme. Inspired by God himself, the psalmist attempts to put his feelings into words. We know by the title of the psalm that it was set to the lilies which is most likely a reference to a tune that this would be sung to. And probably countless Jewish weddings had someone sing this at their wedding. Then in verses 2 through 9, we see the royal groom. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you. Literally, it means that the king was beautiful. He was full of splendor. And his lips, when they spoke, were words and decrees anointed by the Lord. So this earthly king spoke words from God to the people, and the greater fulfillment, of course, would be in the Messiah who spoke words of authority. And that was the ministry of Jesus where everyone was always amazed. He speaks with authority. In verses 3 through 5, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. So this earthly king is spoken of, of being ready 
to take up his sword and go to battle for all that stands for what is right. The true greatness of this king is that he defends the cause of truth and humility and righteousness. What a contrast to most leaders of countries. But he would defend his people and he would execute justice. How much more perfectly this would be done by the promised king and messiah. In verses 6 and 7, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. So we know the fulfillment of these verses are a reference to Jesus Christ, the far greater than any earthly king that was ever in Israel. The writer to the Hebrews has been trying to show the lordship of Jesus and how he is better than anything in Judaism, which was all a foreshadowing of Jesus. So what is declared here is the son's deity being declared by the father himself. Only Jesus Christ can be called God, yet at the same time have the father as his God. And that's because of the incarnation when he came here as the God man. How amazing that tucked into the words of this psalm about a royal wedding is truth revealed about the ultimate bridegroom, Jesus Christ. His throne has been established forever. Jesus perfectly loved righteousness as he himself is perfect and sinless. He hates wickedness and one day he will judge all wickedness. And so it is God who has anointed Jesus. These verses quoted in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9 are a great proof text for the deity of Christ. So that, as some of you may experience, someone knocking on your door and wanting to engage in a discussion about Jesus. Uh, they believe he is a created being, and therefore not perfect deity like the Father. But as Jesus is referred in Hebrews 1, quoting here, Psalm 45, it is very clear that God the Father has appointed God the Son. That is, after all, the meaning of Christ or the Messiah, it is the anointed one. Therefore, Jesus is not a created divine being, as false religious cults would teach. Rather, he is on his eternal throne. He is anointed by God the Father to rule his kingdom in perfect righteousness. So this is a great proof text. It is not likely that the psalmist understood all that he was writing about in its fulfillment in the future. He is led, though, by the Spirit of God to write these words, and they do have a near and far meaning. He spoke not only of an actual wedding of a royal king in Israel, but he spoke of the true king, the promised Messiah King, Jesus. In verses 8 and 9, we see the king's wedding robes. They were fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. These are very expensive fragrances. They are also mentioned in the Song of Solomon, chapter 4. He had a palace that had ivory inlaid throughout, and there was beautiful string music and harps and a variety of string music being played. The queen is at his right side. With all of her noble attendants, she is wearing the best gold of Ophir. We don't know where that really is. But in our day, a wedding is mostly about the bride, but in their culture, a wedding was mostly about the bridegroom. So now we read, we go back, She's there, but now let's go back before she got to be next to him and see the bride in verses 10 through 12. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. 
Then the king will desire your beauty, because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among you will seek you your favor. Now in our society, uh, both the parents and the bride and groom are equally important and involved. <coughs> but as was the custom then, uh, when a bride left her father's house, she really did leave. And the thought was really based on the command of Genesis 2.24 to leave and to cleave to your husband. Perhaps that's why in Je the Genesis account, it only speaks of a man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife because it's assumed to be the case when the bride leaves her parents that she will cleave to her husband. While the groom is on his way to the home of the bride with his attendants and she's eagerly awaiting his arrival, she realizes she is leaving her home and her family forever. And so the writer of the psalm offers her some advice. You need to not focus on the past and be downcast about all that you're leaving. You must leave your people and your father's house. This was God's arrangement, really when he instituted marriage, when brides and grooms put their own parents ahead of their own spouse, there is nothing but trouble. Leave and cleave is the command that God gave. One can't help but think about the demands that Jesus also makes for those who want to follow him. If you are going to follow him, Jesus said, then you must love him supremely above your father, your mother, your spouse, your children. The second advice given to the bride is to honor or obey her new husband. There is to be a willing submission from the bride to her groom as she turns to him who loves her so completely, who is taken with her. <clears throat> and this is such good advice, because in order for a marriage to be God-honoring, the husband is to have a tender love and cherish his wife as he does his own life. And she, in turn, is to express her love by holding her husband in the highest esteem and submitting to him. Ephesians obviously goes on to tell us more and make it very clear that earthly marriage really is his blueprint by the Lord, but it's to portray a picture of Christ and his church. The last word of advice is to look ahead. Think about the future joys that will be yours and what this marriage will bring. She is to love her king, her husband, to honor him, and the result will be joy in her own life in the years to come. I don't know about you, but as I was going over these words of advice, um, they are a very good reminder because they are Bible-based and they need to be in practice in our own marriages. Have you left your parents? Or do their opinions or your closeness to your parents mean more to you than that of your husband? If so, you are guilty of clearly disobeying the command of scripture about marriage to leave and cleave. And what does your submission to your husband look like? Do you obey this command from Ephesians 4? Or do you pick and choose the things you'll submit to as long as they're the ones that you're in agreement with? Leading is the man's responsibility, and some men do it wonderfully, and some men do it horrendously. But they will answer to the Lord for how they led their family. Following and submitting is the responsibility of a wife, and we are to do so with love and respect to the submission and leadership of our spouse. When these things get out of order, there is chaos, there is unhappiness, and there is a great threat to a home. 
If you're like me, then maybe you need to repent of some of the sins in your heart if the Lord's bringing to your mind your behavior so that you are a wife who keeps these truths foremost in her heart. That brings us to the wedding procession of verses 13 through 15. The beauty of the queen as seen as her wedding gown is embroidered with gold. She is led to her king with all of her bridesmaids and all of her attendants following as she is brought to the palace to the waiting husband-to-be. There is a great deal of joy with the princess and her companions as they make this trek and the whole city gets to see her too, not just those invited. And there is hope for the future in verses 16 and 17. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people, peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. The king is addressed as the hope of this nation will be the children who will follow in his steps. Then the psalmist says he will keep this memory alive and give thanks forever. And the fact that we've actually read this psalm, studied this psalm, or talking about this psalm is an answer to what he had prayed. This is the inspired word of God. There was a real royal wedding that took place when it was written, far more extravagant than any royal wedding we've watched on TV from England. But there is a future wedding of the marriage supper of the Lamb, that is Jesus Christ with his bride, the church. <clears throat> what is the most important question really to ask is, will you be in attendance at that wedding? Only those individuals who have placed their complete confidence and faith in the perfect, righteous Christ and have trusted him alone to be saved from the wrath of God will be there. If you know him, then rejoice in the future that you have and <coughs> obey his commands today and keep inviting other people to this anointed one so that they will be in attendance at that great wedding. That brings us to our next Messianic Psalm 110. This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is presented as a holy king and royal high priest. No human king in Israel was both priest and king. <clears throat> presented in the psalm was written by David as the truth of God's authority over everything. The sovereign Messiah yet to come, from David's perspective, is also a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So we see the sovereign kingship of the coming Messiah, and we see, first of all, verses 1 through 3, the reign of Christ. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the do. This is actually a conversation between the first and second members of the Godhead. The Lord God, the Lord God the Father says to my Lord, God the Son, what an amazing truth here in Psalm 45. Jesus Christ, who is David's Lord, is appointed to sit at God the Father's right hand, the place of highest authority and honor. With the status equal to God, the Son will share in the universal reign of God, the Father. At this time, Christ is seated. When he finished making the sacrifice for sin and ascended to the Father, he sat down. His work was done. 
He's seated until that future time when he returns as conquering king. And in ancient times, kings would often place their feet on their def uh, defeated enemies to show their dominance. The enemies of Christ will come, become his footstool. They will be subdued under his authority. Verse 2, we read that the future Messiah reign of Jesus will come to pass, and the Lord God, the Father, will extend to his son the scepter until there is none left who will oppose his rule. The scepter represents the authority of the sovereign Christ. The Father commands the Son to rule and establish his kingdom over all of his enemies. These enemies are all who reject and oppose Jesus. They don't want any other authority in their lives. This is how we're all born into this world. We all are born going our own way, doing what we want to do, being our own boss. That's how we come into this world, and we're, that's what makes us all desperately wicked sinners. We live independent, thinking about us. Every person has had the opportunity to respond to the evidence of the light of God all around them in creation. We studied this last semester in Romans. And God also gave conscience as another witness to each person. And so many embrace a philosophy of life um, void of the reality of who the biblical Jesus Christ is. And therefore, they are his enemies. They have no thought that they are. This scepter given to Christ will extend far beyond Zion, and clearly he will have total dominion. Read in verse 3, the father then assures the son that his troops, his true believers who have enlisted in his service will absolutely be willing to join him and support for his kingdom. One writer said, a day is coming where God's power will be unleashed and his chosen ones will willingly fight for him. We've seen that in our study of Revelation when he comes back to rescue his people, Israel, who will all embrace their Messiah at that moment. And those who are his army, his believers, are coming back as he comes back to conquer and defeat the enemies of God and Israel. Christ will be dressed in holy majesty, spotless, and the picture is of Jesus being strong and mighty and coming back with total authority. The Messiah Jesus is appointed by God as a priest. We see in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. God the Father has sworn to himself that he will send his son to this world to be a priest. Here we have the first to ever serve as both priest and king. The priests in Israel always represented the people to God. People didn't get to elect their priest. It was those who were in the line of Aaron who were to be in the priesthood. But we see that Christ was chosen by the Father for the mission to make our redemption a possibility. The eternal purposes of God are fixed and they will never change. We read in verse 4, Before the incarnation, the Father declared to the Son, You are a priest forever. He is the perfect and final high priest and is never to be succeeded by another. This is the eternal plan of God, which was based on the perfect and all-sufficient work of Jesus, the Son, when he died on the cross. Therefore, there is no need for any other sacrifice to be made for sins. The perfect atonement that Christ made is complete and totally sufficient. That's what propitiation means. God was satisfied with it. I remind you of the words of Jesus on the cross just before he died. It is finished. The debt is paid. It's 
done. Jesus is the perfect high priest forever. He's seated at the Father's right hand. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He's completed his once-for-all-time death. If this is really true, then how do humans think that we can add to what he has already accomplished? That's complete. He doesn't need to keep dying. The sin debt is paid once and for all. He alone is the great high priest predicted about, pictured so clearly here in Psalm 110. With this divine appointment for Christ as priest, Jesus was not of the lineage of Aaron, like all Jewish priests have been. Rather, he was from this priesthood of Melchizedek, an eternal one. Melchizedek is indeed a real person, if you took the time to look him up in Genesis 14. He was the king of Salem. After Abraham went to rescue Lot, his nephew, from uh, the four kings who had attacked another five-king coalition, he rescued us and was on the way back, and he was met by Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and Abraham offered to him tithes from the spoils of the battle. This is all the information we read about this priest in the book of Genesis. We know his name means king of righteousness. We also know he was king of Salem, Jerusalem, king of peace. It is also now, almost a thousand years from the Genesis account, that his name shows up here in this psalm. It will be nearly another thousand years before his name shows up in the New Testament book of Hebrews eight times. For our study, he is clearly a picture of the priesthood of Christ, where Jesus is both king and priest. The priesthood belongs to a much higher order than what any human would have been, Aaron and his sons, and the result is the perfect work of salvation. Hebrews is a book that tells how Jesus is better than anything in Judaism. In Hebrews 7.22, we read that Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant as he holds the priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Honestly, the thought of the Messiah being a priest would have been quite a surprise to the Jewish uh, people reading this. The function of a priest and a king were always separate. You recall when King Uzziah attempted to offer incense to the Lord, he went into the temple where the priests were only allowed to go, and God struck him with leprosy and judgment. But when the Messiah comes, he will rightly have both title of king and priest to God Most High. And then verses 5 through 7, the prophetic return of Christ. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over the broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So now, it's a different picture we see in this. God the Father stands at the Son's right hand, supplying for every need of the Son. This includes the defeat of his enemies on earth. So the Son can fulfill all of God's promises to Abraham regarding heaven a land, as he brings the remaining Jewish people into a thousand-year reign, the Millennial Kingdom as well as filling, fulfilling his promise to David of the royal king sitting on his throne. And this expression, the day of his wrath, we've seen that before when we studied Daniel, chapter 9, book of Revelation, over and over again, 6, 14, and 19 speaks of the most <coughs> horrific time that has never happened 
that is yet to come on this earth, where God pours out his wrath on this earth. And it's all leading up to the kingdom of Christ being established as he returns. We've studied these events in Daniel and Revelation. I remind you of Revelation 6, people on earth, when all these horrors are being poured out. And what is their response? Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? He will pronounce his judicial verdict on everyone. It will be a day of judgment as Christ is seen as heaping up the dead corpses. It has the picture of a battlefield and all of the enemies of Christ lying dead and defeated. He will crush the whole earth. None will be left to oppose him. Then verse 7 speaks about the triumph of Jesus, who will drink from the brook beside the way as he's refreshed after his victory. So what is your response to this messianic psalm? I was thinking about it. I wanted you to think, because only you know in your own heart, if the Jesus you claim to know, or the Jesus you claim to pray to, is the same Jesus we read about in the Bible. He is on his throne in heaven. He alone has made it possible to be in a right relationship with God. As the high priest to his people, he offered the perfect sacrifice for sins, so sufficient that it never has to be repeated again. He is going to return to earth. He will judge all who have refused him. They will be separated from him forever and ever in the lake of fire, where they will lay or burn in horrific pain and awareness, trying to pay a debt that can never be paid, because they never trusted the one who paid the debt for them. Christ is Lord of all, and you know what? You have to come to him on his terms, not your own. Well, this is what I've always thought about him, or the Jesus I know, he wouldn't do that. There'll be another opportunity, whatever. You need to make sure your faith is in the Jesus presented in scripture, not one that you've had from a religious tradition or just in your own mind that makes you comfortable. This means then that you must come to him on his terms, not your own. It means you must repent of your sin, which means there is a sorrow over the sins that you are aware of and a desire to turn from them. There is a, a, a change of mind involved as you turn from your selfish life and turn to Christ alone for salvation. And there must be a faith in Jesus that what he has done as the perfect high priest in dying on the cross on behalf of sinners like you is sufficient. Please don't leave this study, ladies, without making sure you do belong to him, that you have trusted him to be your Lord and Savior. He alone is deserving of your trust and your faith. You cannot add anything to what Jesus did. And if that's what you're being told, it's not the truth of Scripture. Measure everything by the Word of God. The Father was satisfied with the payment of sin that Jesus made for sinners. We don't have to keep killing him. His work is finished. Amen. There is no place for any human merit of any kind. It is only those who see their sinful, wicked, hopeless state who mourn their sin and turn from their sin and trust Jesus alone for salvation that will be with him at that great wedding in the sky 
one day. And if you've trusted him, then be so thankful for the truth that he is your high priest. He is representing you continually. All of Satan's accusations about how rotten you are and how you blew it again. He is representing you. He is your savior. He represents you to God, and his blood sacrifice was sufficient for past, present, and future sins. For this, we can be forever grateful and express our gratitude to this amazing Savior. You know, these Messianic Psalms have been really hard and stretching, but I hope that you see that tucked away in verses that maybe you've read before and never even realized are nuggets of truth about our great Lord and Savior. What an amazing thing. I, I hope that you've grown from the discipline of looking at these hard chapters. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And though it's been a struggle to always understand what the psalmist was meaning, I thank you that the truth of who you are is seen throughout the whole Old Testament. And I thank you that you came, you did the will of the Father as God, and God the Father was pleased with God the Son. I thank you that your day to reign is soon coming, Lord. I pray that every woman here will be ready, that they will turn to you and make sure their faith is in you and what you have done and not in their own human effort. And Lord, I thank you that you love us so much that you would have left all the glories of heaven and the constant worship of myriads of angels shouting out, holy, 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 to come amongst wicked men and be spurned and mocked and hated and crucified all on behalf of sinners like us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.